stories and for the hour we're going to celebrate Christmas by playing well great Christmas music and that's allowed here on our American stories because most great Christmas music well most great Christmas songs well they're stories and let's start off with a song you just don't turn off when you hear it and it's the little drummer boy but it's not the typical one and this one this is my son's favorite do you know this one? Oh, I do indeed it's a lovely thing but the legendary Bing Crosby-David Bowie combo, that duet that sits in the pantheon of eternally listenable Christmas tunes. Let's take a listen. Gifts we bring Christmas time is here. This one, well, it's Vince Guaraldi and the Vince Guaraldi trio, and that means, well, it's 
It's jazz time, like a light snow, a lovely, welcome distraction. Let's take a listen. Next up, what Christmas means to me. There are plenty of great Motown Christmas classics that have been radio staples for decades, but it's hard to top this bouncy 1967 Stevie Wonder track. That's probably why it's been covered by everyone from Hanson to CeeLo Green. Candles burning low, lots of mistletoe, lots of snow and ice. Everywhere we go Choirs singing carols Right outside my door All these things and more All these things Oh, that's what Christmas means to me, my love Oh, yeah <laughs> Yeah And you know what I mean I see a smiling face Like I This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more of our favorite Christmas songs here from the staff, from all the folks here at Our American Stories. 
stories and we continue with our Christmas music hour. Next up, please come home for Christmas. It's hard to turn the dial when a broken-hearted man is pleading his holiday heart out. First recorded by R&B singer Charles Brown in 1960, a cover by the Eagles. Climb the charts almost 20 years later. Bells will be ringing This sad, sad news Next up, Carol of the Bells. Who doesn't like rocking out to Trans-Siberian Orchestra? Christmas Eve Sarajevo is an instrumental medley of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen and Carol of the Bells from TSO's 1996 debut album Christmas Eve and Other Stories. Let's take a listen. 
Next up, Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. No Christmas is complete without sold-out performances of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, and no portion of that ballet captures the magical innocence of the season quite like this one, immortalized in roughly 8,000 TV commercials, and yet still easy on the ears. Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Christmas music could use a lot more funk. And Mr. Funkadelic himself, James Brown, was kind enough to provide it. When the Godfather of Soul addresses St. Nick directly, when he testifies, we all win. Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. Hitch up your reindeer. Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Fill every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so uh, Leave a toy for Johnny Leave a doll for Mary Leave something pretty for Donnie And don't Forget about Gary Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Tell him James Brown sent you Go straight to the ghetto You know that I know what you will see Cause that was once me Mothers and soul brothers Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Santa Claus Oh Lord Go straight to the ghetto Feel every stocking you find The kids are gonna love you so You're fine You know that they need you so I'm begging you Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto If anyone Wanna know Tell them Hank Ballard told so Santa Claus Go straight to the ghetto Never thought I'd realize This is Our American Stories, and when we come back, more of our favorite Christmas songs here from the staff, from all the folks here at Our American Stories. Don't leave nothing for me. I've had my chance, you see. 
special Christmas edition, and well, we have to do what we have to do, and that is step back, get away from the microphone, and play some of our favorite Christmas songs. Next up, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Stink, stank, stunk. One of the funniest, one of the best, one of the most imitated songs of the season. The original version featured the voice of the great Thurl Ravenscroft, or Ravenscroft, the same man who made Tony the Tiger say they're great. Let's take a listen. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a... Greasy black peel You're a monster, Mr. Grinch Your heart's an empty hole Your brain is full of spiders You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch I wouldn't touch you with a Thirty-nine and a half foot pole You're a vile one, Mr. Grinch You have termites in your smile You have all the tender sweetness of a seasick crocodile, Mr. Grinch Given the choice between the two of you I'd take the seasick crocodile You're a foul one, Mr. Grinch. You're a nasty, wasty skunk. Your heart is full of unwashed socks. Your soul is full of gunk, Mr. Grinch. The three words that best describe you are as follows, and I quote, Stink, stank, stunk. You're a rotter. Mr. Grinch, you're the king of sinful socks. Your heart's a dead tomato splotched with moldy purple spots, Mr. Grinch. Your soul is an appalling dump heap, overflowing with the most disgraceful assortment of deplorable rubbish imaginable, mangled up in tangled up knots. 
you nauseate me, Mr. Grinch, with a nauseous super nos. You're a crooked, jerky jockey, and you drive a crooked horse, Mr. Grinch. You're a three-decker sauerkraut and toadstool sandwich with arsenic sauce. Next up, We Three Kings. Just another in a long line of holiday hits written by clergymen in the mid-19th century. Hundreds of beautiful renditions have been recorded over the years. But just listen to the Beach Boys and try not to get goosebumps. My second favorite, Santa Claus is Coming to Town by the White Soul Man and New Jersey native Bruce Springsteen and his East Street boys kicking it back and having some fun. Yeah, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pop, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, Santa Claus is coming to town.
American Stories, and when we come back, the final segment, some of our favorites we saved for last, here on Our American Stories, Christmas Music Hour Special. special Christmas edition. Next up, I'll Be Home for Christmas. While the original Bing Crosby recording captures the heartbreaking daydreams of a GI in World War II, this song remains the gold standard for the experience of Christmas in any war. Whether it's a soldier in Germany in the 1940s or a soldier deployed anywhere today. I'll be home for Christmas You can plan on me Please have snow And mistletoe And presents on the tree Christmas Eve will find me Can plan on me. 
have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Next up, have yourself a merry little Christmas. From the moment Judy Garland first sang this song in 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis, we were all hooked. No other Christmas song combined joyous lyrics and a somber, wistful tone in quite the way this one does. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight Have yourself a merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay Next year all be miles away Once again as in olden days Happy golden days of yore Faithful friends who were dear to us will be Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry And last but not least, White Christmas. If you're going to name the one Christmas song that nobody has ever gotten sick of, it might as well be the number one selling song of all time. And yes, that's number one selling song, not number one selling Christmas song. 
written by Irving Berlin, White Christmas has been covered by everyone from Bob Marley to Bette Midler, Kenny Rogers to Taylor Swift. Like the ones I used to know Where the treetops glisten And children listen To hear bells in the snow The white Christmas With every Christmas card I write May your days be merry and bright And may all your Christmases And there you have it, and a Merry Christmas to all. It's a special time of the year, a special season for families. And so on this day, Our American Stories, the whole team here, the whole staff, everyone affiliated with the show sends out a thanks to all who've been listening this year. And we hope to bring you many, many more stories this coming year. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth Long lay the world in sin and error pining Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices 
voices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees oh hear the angel voices oh night divine When Christ was born Oh, night divine Oh, night Oh, night divine Truly He taught us to love one another our American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We liked lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company and it was, you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. What child is the Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, 
Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival. They called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand. The beer has been made. It's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, firs and holly into their homes. Over the centuries the concept grew and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today picking out a tree is a family tradition and in any given year American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Rocks Estate Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the Star of Bethlehem and the Wise Men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. 
The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense because one of the few details you'll find in the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a, a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered, except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to, that Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner. And he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin. They're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs and people sing them together. And very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically-oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well, 
especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christkindl. That's right, Christkindl. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christkindl got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Kris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. 
because they were all drunk. They had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's, both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they owned. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday. And they would mold our image of jolly old St. Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore, a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature, who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood, and designed St. Peter's Episcopal Church, had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. 
both Old World legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter, and Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, long red tongue, covered with fur, tail, and hoof, and he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas, and one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore's Saint Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky, led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder, and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took more Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about uh, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created it. The image of Uncle Sam that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image of Santa became indelible. And with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. 
the list of naughty and nice living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward department store in Chicago. And they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end, they decide to need something a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941 just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. Of a Christmas just like the so the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war, but it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. 
According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962, came a flurry of animated specials. But in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson advertising agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old, they were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're going to have to run it 
because it's scheduled for four days from now, but you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it never even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, well, if we don't do it, who will? Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Hey, Bill staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking at me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Ho, 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 then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? A football? I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap, and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I laid there for a minute, and I knew that I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches America somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. 
He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, if something happens to you, you enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it. From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man, and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly is the most American thing about America, that I could say a sentence like that We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas, we talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.